Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. My family was uh, raised there on weekends. It's one of the most uh, ecologically diverse and important landscapes in Canada and arguably the world. The tiny little headwaters there accumulate cold, fresh water, which builds into streams and then builds our rivers, which feed everything that the prairies in Alberta depend upon. And so in addition to being a very special place to me personally, it's an incredibly important place for Alberta's future, particularly its water future. Our government's asking us to embrace a plan that's going to destroy that future. Meet Dave Eaton, ecologist, fishing guide, and listener to the show. He recently got in touch with us, and that very special place he's describing is in the Rockies of southern Alberta, an area known as the Eastern Slopes. There is no way that open pit coal mining can occur in the Eastern Slopes without incurring irreparable damage, and it will go on for generations. It's a legacy that will haunt Alberta and will damage our water future for possibly centuries to come. I hope this gets stopped so that my children Sorry. My children and grandchildren will be able to enjoy this space. That future Albertans will still have water. Dave told us he's actually grateful for the chance to talk about it, even if it does bring him to tears. It's an indication of what's at stake for him. In fact, the stakes are high for a lot of people in the province. Welcome to What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. Coal is reliable. It's used around the world for heat and electricity. But it's terrible for the environment. Here in Canada, coal-fired power plants are being phased out by 2030. But coal mining and export is still going on. Ottawa has promised to look at thermal coal exports. It's the coal that's used for electricity and heat. But there are no plans for the other type. It's called metallurgical coal, and it's used in steelmaking. And that is the bulk of what's still mined in Canada and shipped abroad. A fight is underway about what the future of coal mining will look like, and it's all unfolding on Alberta's eastern slopes. They stretch 800 kilometers north from the U.S. border all the way up to the central part of the province. That terrain is a picture postcard of the region. Cattle graze on rolling fields, snow-capped peaks shimmer under blue skies, Rivers that nourish farmers' fields are also ripe with fish. Little wonder, then, that former Premier, the late Peter Lougheed, decided to cloak the slopes with a protective policy to keep them from harm. And perhaps less surprising that Albertans were stunned when the current government yanked that cloak off, opening the region to new mining projects. Um, hello, my name is First Steels Woman. My English name is Latasha Kafrobe. I am the founder of the Nitsitibi Water Protectors. 
In fact, Kafrobe founded Mississippi Water Protectors as a way to fight the exploration and development of coal on the eastern slopes. Latasha Kafrobe, hello. Hi, nice, nice to join you today. Can you first of all just tell me how you found out about the change of policy? Um, it was actually something that I found out quite a bit later. What first kind of brought my attention to mining was the Grassy Mountain Coal Project, which was entering into the final stages of approval through the federal regulatory um, process. I found out about that project just kind of by chance and really um, quickly took an interest of it because of the really devastating impacts that this project would have on the land and the water and on treaty and Aboriginal rights. Um, and by looking into that project, it actually cascaded into multiple things. And that's how I came to learn of the coal policy, what it was. And this was all kind of in October of 2020. So I was quite late to the game as the policy was rescinded of May of 2020. And it was really disheartening. The more and more you dug into it, the lack of First Nations consultation. It wasn't just me that hadn't heard about it. It was First Nations um, across Alberta and BC, including tribal governments, all of whom were unaware of the rescinding of this policy. And when you found out about it, what was your reaction? I was quite upset because this policy, it helped to protect these areas, especially areas that had never been touched, what's are known as kind of category one and category two lens under the coal policy. And it stripped, um, it stripped all of those um, protections out. And so companies were able to go in and do extractive coal exploration in those areas. So I was quite angry because it was, I mean, lots of these areas that need to be protected all of a sudden weren't. You know this part of the province really well. Tell me what it means to you. Well, it's really important to me as an individual, but I'm actually going to kind of highlight the importance of these areas to my community, um, the Blood Tribe, and to all of the Blackfoot Confederacy, which include um, our other sister nations, including the Siksika, um, Bigani Nation, and Amskapi Bigani. And these areas are pinnacle to the survival of Blackfoot life and ways of being. Lots of these places hold our creation stories. They um, house traditional plants and medicines. Um, they're home to our various kin relationships, including animals and bird species, everything, everything under the sun, essentially. And the Blackfoot have long-standing histories in these places and continue to use those lands for our language dissemination, our knowledge dissemination, and our cultural and ceremonial practices. So in essence, it these places are crucial to every aspect of Blackfoot life. Are these places that you actually have spent time in? Yes, um, the Rocky Mountains and the Crow's Nest Pass area where all of these mines are being developed um, are places that I have visited throughout my childhood and into my adult life. Um, as a child, I mean, the Crowsness Pass is about 40 minutes from where I grew up on the Blood Reserve. So I visited these places, you know, with my parents and my grandparents um, for ceremonial reasons, for recreational reasons. 
um, just as a nice drive a lot of the times. And as a mother, I bring my children out to these places as well, because these are their homelands as, as Blackfoot children. So showing them where they come from, being able to point to the mountains where our creation stories um, derive from is really important in that continuation. And yet, I mean, you, you talk with some understandable passion about what, what the area means to you and to the nation, and yet some elected band councils in the region support this expanded coal mining. What do you say to them? It's a tricky one. And I'll always kind of mention, you know, the the disparity between Indigenous realities and Canadian realities. You know, I grew up on reserve and there is high levels of poverty. There is a lot of um there's a lot of disconnect between what's happening in first nations communities and in mainstream canadian society and so there is a need for economic development however that doesn't have to come at the expense of the land and at the expense of our spirituality and ceremonial practices and so i do believe that there is a better way and an alternative way to go about building up our nations both um, economically, but as well as sustaining our our Blackfoot ways of life. So to those kind of councils that do support these projects, I understand why they might be desired to do so. But I, I strongly believe that there is alternative ways and that returning to our traditional forms of governance um, is a really important step in that as it directs the power and decision making back to the community as a whole versus um, a few elected members. And you, you've had conversations with these, these band councils that do support it. I, I'm wondering, are the conversations difficult? Um, they can be. <laughs> they can be. Um, and I'll also note that the blood tribe where, where I'm from um, and the Sixaga Nation they have voiced their opposition to new coal development in the area and are actively opposed to coal mining right now. Um, they've also been doing a lot of work in regards to the coal policy and trying to ensure that there's meaningful consultation. And so it's those conversations are a lot different than, say, conversations that I have with some nations who are still kind of promoting coal development in these areas. And they, they can be difficult because I, I know that we do have these shared histories in these areas. It can be quite challenging. And I think that we're at a really kind of pinnacle moment in time where we are rediscovering and reclaiming um, our land stewardship practices, our language, um, our culture. So it's just one of those moments in time where there's a lot of tension. <laughs> Yeah, and I hear everything you're saying, but I'm wondering, does climate change also come into those difficult conversations? It does. And we don't have to look far to see the impacts that climate change are having on our ways of life right now. It's more difficult to find natural resources that we have used um, sustainably in the past. So things like medicines, things like access to clean and healthy water, you know, the high droughts that we're having in these areas. Um, Southern Alberta isn't um, doesn't have a luxurious amount of water. We're a pretty dry area. And so the impacts of, of the climate crisis right now is just being further escalated in these areas. And it, it's really quite sad. And so we're seeing these conversations rise um, time and time again. 
And what was interesting is when I started doing lots of the advocacy in protecting these areas, it was also the blood tribe election. Um, so we were voting in a new chief and council. And I can honestly say that the climate crisis and land and cultural protection has never been such a um, such a hot topic as part of our political um, forums and everything as it was in 2020. Was that actually reflected in the people who were elected? Did they end up having a different set of priorities? Yeah, and it was. And I'm, I'm glad to see some of the council members that are elected this term with those really um, important values related to the land and culture and people and how those three things all work together. And so it was really important. It's not quite the turnout I would have hoped for, <laughs> um, but it was a really important um, moment in time in getting not just our um, elected officials, but all of our community and our voting members talking about these issues in such a constructive manner. Now, you talked earlier about what, what this area means to you and how you've visited it and visited it with your children. You also visited the areas that were opened up for exploration, and I wonder if you could describe what you saw. Yeah, so the areas opened up for exploration and there's a really common misconception that exploration is, you know, they're just kind of walking out, viewing the area, digging some little holes. That is not true. They are taking large trucks out to the area. They're clear cutting um, forest ways to make roads, to get up to these mountains and lands that have not been touched that way or have not been desecrated that way before. How did you react to seeing that? Honestly, I, I cried. <laughs> um, I sat there thinking, like, what what is going to be left? There's not many of these areas that are open and accessible. And by the time, you know, my children come into their own and they're trying to bring out their children to these areas, what's going to be left? It made me really sad thinking about my my grandparents who would bring me out to these areas and my my dad specifically who would bring me out to these areas as well thinking about them and how heartbroken they would be if they if they saw these things as well. So then what do you think needs to be done? Well, um if we were to focus kind of on the coal policy, I think that what we've learned through lots of this is that a policy is a promise. It's not law. Um, it can be removed at any time. <laughs> it can be changed. It can be adapted. And so what we do need is further protections for these areas um, that are bound not just by Western law, but that are influenced by Indigenous law and Indigenous traditional ecological knowledge as well. So that really means that we need to co-create um, between First Nations and, and the Alberta and federal governments the protections that need to be in place and the stewardship practices that need to be continued in these areas for the water and land to be successful there. But does that include mining or, or is, is there any level of mining that's acceptable to you? You know, if you go out to those areas and you see the current state of these streams and these rivers, there's no room for mining there. The amount of damage that has already been done, there is no room for coal or any other type of, of harmful resource extraction. Latasha Kafrope, thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you. It, it's always uh, a joy to be able to bring a little bit of awareness um, to what's happening in the Eastern Slopes. Natasha Kafro wasn't the only one caught off guard when the coal policy was scrapped. From fly fishers to ranchers and country musicians to hikers, Albertans pushed back. And as our producer Molly Siegel explains, it helped cast an old policy in a new light. Susan Douglas Murray first saw hints near her home in Crow's Nest Pass along the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains. We'd seen uh, roads being closed. Then we'd see all all sorts of vehicles and trucks and things that we wouldn't normally see going up and down these roads. That was in the summer of 2020. Soon people in town figured out those trucks and road closures were mining companies. Susan Douglas Murray and her husband own a shop and run fly fishing tours against the backdrop of the eastern slopes. And for almost a decade, she's fought against coal development in the area. This time, the anger from the public was fierce. This isn't just Alberta fighting for Alberta. This is Albertans fighting for part of the identity of Canada. What she, along with many others, were fighting for goes back decades to the mid-70s. The Alberta government has released its new policy on coal development. The policy contains hefty increases in royalties and tougher environmental regulations. CBC's National News in June 1976. Peter Lougheed was the premier of Alberta at the time. He took a stance on coal. Coal has a much more serious environmental problems. It destroys, most of it's located in some of the beautiful parts of our province and would affect, for example, our potential for recreation and tourism. So there's limitations on how much coal we'd be produced. If it's on the plains, it can affect agriculture areas. To safeguard against those serious environmental problems, Lougheed divided the areas in and around the eastern slopes into four categories. Category 1, largely at the BC-Alberta border, the most environmentally sensitive, was completely protected. Land including iconic national parks like Banff and Jasper. Category 2 were also fairly sheltered from development. And here's the thing. The rules made companies proposing open-pit coal mines go one step further. They had to get permission from the province before going to the energy regulator. While it wasn't a ban on open pit mining, it was another hurdle that companies didn't want to bother with. Categories 3 and 4 were more open to industry, but still with restrictions. Don Getty was energy minister at the time. If there are provinces more aggressive than this in attempting to attract coal development, you will find that uh, some potential developments will will leave our province and go elsewhere, yes. So in 1976, the Alberta government was kind of saying to industry, you cannot have the heart of the Rocky Mountains. The rescinding of the coal policy was morally and ethically wrong, and the government betrayed the trust that Albertans had given it to manage our resources. David Leff worked for Lougheed and left government in the late 90s. 
he helped carry out the 1976 coal policy. He says at the time, government asked Albertans what they wanted for the future of the eastern slopes. Things like recreation and tourism came up, but also overwhelmingly. Water, watersheds were absolutely the highest priorities because the government recognized that all of the rivers in Alberta originate in the Rocky Mountains on the east slopes of Alberta. Whether it's Edmonton or Lethbridge or Red Deer or Calgary, that's where all our drinking water comes from. Today, people know more about the negative impacts coal mining can have on water. For Luff, the policy was prophetic. Climate change was not top of mind. And here we are 45 years later, we've just come through one of the worst droughts in Alberta's history this past summer and into the fall. And a snowpack this winter looks to be less than normal. The climate has changed dramatically. And in southern Alberta, um, the Old Man River, the Livingston River, water levels are at the lowest people have seen in generations. Those rivers he mentioned are not glacier-fed. In a dry year, there is no backup water. So when the province scrapped the coal policy in spring 2020, more than four decades after Lougheed brought it in, in many ways, the concerns hadn't changed. People in some communities were outraged about a potential threat to their water. Not on the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains, because that's our water tower. It's a source of a lot of water. It's the wrong thing to do, and people know that. And the backlash kept coming. Conservation groups, outdoorsy types, some ranchers, anglers, and indigenous groups raising their voices in protest. Eventually, in February 2021, the province flip-flopped. An important part of being a responsible government is to admit when you've made a mistake and to fix it. It reinstated the 1976 coal policy, but waited two more months to actually press pause on the mining explorations it had approved. In the spring, it created a coal policy committee in response to the public outcry. Okay, my name's uh, Dr. Ron Wallace, and I was appointed as chairman of the Coal Policy Committee in March 2021. Wallace and his team hit the road, touring mines and meeting with local councils and organizations. They spoke to Indigenous groups and First Nations, not capital C consultation, that's up to the provincial and federal governments. The committee was also swamped with feedback. We received 176 detailed written submissions of which 88 were posted to the blog website. And we held, uh, by virtual and in-person meetings, 67 times. Some of these meetings extended for more than three hours. And we received more than 1,000 emails and letters. One of those letters was from the town of High River. Nestled next to the eastern slopes, many people there worry about the downstream impacts of mining. High River argues in its letter, no amount of money or jobs could compensate for what mining would damage. The environment and human health. Two dozen other local governments and two First Nations signed on. But High River Mayor Craig Snodgrass says that opposition doesn't seem to hold much sway with the province. Here he is telling his local council about a meeting he recently had that included Energy Minister Sonia Savage and Premier Jason Kenney. You know, he is full on an unapologetic supporter of the coal mining industry. I told him straight up that it was disappointing to hear that, that 
um, after all of the public blowback that these guys have got over this coal mining thing that uh, our premier or any elected official would still be dug in with, with this proposal, knowing the majority, 80-85% of Albertans are, are fully against it. Still, there is some support. Like the Council of Crow's Nest Pass, it thinks coal development is a good idea. But ask Susan Douglas Murray, who lives there, and you'll get a different take. We are not all in favor. It is a divided community. The municipality says they're speaking for everyone when they're not. Douglas Murray spoke up, phoning politicians, writing letters and emails, and she liked how the coal committee did its work. For her, it was meaningful and transparent. It's been a month since the committee filed two reports to the province. Those reports still aren't public. And committee chair Ron Wallace isn't at liberty to comment. Meanwhile, Susan Douglas-Murray is getting impatient. I think it's essential that it be revealed pronto. You heard Susan Douglas-Murray there. The word she uses is pronto. So we asked, and Alberta's energy minister, Sonia Savage, isn't planning to release the reports pronto. Both Minister Savage and Premier Kenny declined to comment about their meeting with the mayor of High River. And as for the Coal Association of Canada... We contacted it for comment as well, but no one got back to us. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer... What's better? Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Still, there remains the question of where coal fits into Canada's climate future. And remember the type of coal that we've been talking about. It's used to make steel. But our next guest says there are cleaner ways to create the metal, ways that don't require Canadian coal or its emissions. Chris Bataille is an energy researcher and an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. He's the lead author on a forthcoming IPCC report chapter focused on decarbonizing industries like steel. Chris, hello. Hi. Can you tell me what the difference is between coal that's used for steel making and coal that's used to generate heat and power when it comes to emissions? There's really no difference in the emissions. Both are combusted and end up as CO2 in the atmosphere. The metallurgical coal tends to be of a higher purity. And metallurgical is to make steel, is it? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and what they do is they heat it to make a very, very pure coal that they use in blast furnaces um, to take the oxygen off iron and to melt the steel. Okay, And, and, and then the coal that generates heat and power that's called thermal coal. And, and are, are the emissions at the same level then? It's the exact. It, it's roughly the same. And ter- the net impact to, to the atmosphere is the same from steel making coal and thermal coal. Okay, so tell me this. Why is the federal government planning to phase out the thermal coal that's used for heating, but not the other that's used for making steel? 
Uh, it, it's partly it's just where we are on the climate policy agenda. We have options now for electricity that, you know, commercial options in terms of wind, solar, nuclear. Um, one of the things we have to do really fast is get rid of unabated coal use and making electricity globally if we're to have any hope of meeting the Paris Agreement targets. Steel's a little different because the, the coal is inherent to the main process that we use today to make steel. And the coal is inherent to basically most of the primary steelmaking facilities globally. When it comes, though, to, to coal and the emissions it generates, I'm wondering that in, in Canada's thinking, is it also because that kind of coal used to make steel is actually mostly exported yeah. and burned yes. abroad, so it generates emissions overseas and doesn't come into Canada's um, emissions bottom line. You, you've got it exactly right. Um, we only count emission direct emissions in our territory, right? So the, the 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 energy that's used to extract the coal, to put it on a train, put it on a boat, counts for us, and that's that's a few megatons. But when it shows up mainly in Asia for steel making, it's sixty megatons of of emissions just from BC's coal and ninety ninety megatons from all of Canada's coal exports, and that's quite it's more it's substantially more than British Columbia, and it's roughly 15-odd percent of Canada's emissions. So steel is used for construction, it's used for appliances, it's used for cars and, and more, and demand for it is growing, according to the World Steel Association. So why shouldn't Canada be part of the production chain? Oh, no, there's no argument and I, that Canada should be part of the production chain. Whether that demand goes down a bit, stays flat or grows, there's a lot of debate about that. It depends on how India and the African countries industrialize, because the big burst in recent steel demand came from China industrializing. If Canada is still going to be part of the game, how can steel be made with lower emissions? So effectively, what we're doing is using hydrogen instead to be the chemical reductant that, that makes the iron usable. Now, if you push that technology a little further, you can do it completely with what's called green hydrogen, which is made from clean electricity and, and electrolysis. And the Swedes are building a full-scale plant right now, and there are at least 10 plants that are fully committed in Europe and plus more in China at this point in time using this technology where we use hydrogen to separate the iron and the oxygen, and then we use electric arc furnaces to melt and smelt the iron and turn it into steel. But we've covered hydrogen on this show before, and you, you, as you have more or less stated, it's still under development, and it's not always clean. Could it really be considered a replacement for coal at this stage? Yes. Um, it, it's not a matter of it being ready. It's been ready since the 1930s. It just costs so much more than using coal and natural gas. Now, two things are changing with making, making green hydrogen. It's the dramatic fall in the cost of making clean electricity for the electrolysis from solar and wind. And it's the fall in the cost of, of the electrolyzers that use the electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. Um, now, the key thing there is economies of scale. If we make enough of these electrolyzers, the cost comes down. And if we can get the, the cheap solar and wind, that hydrogen starts becoming competitive uh, competitive with making it with coal. And there are people who are projecting that by the late 2030s to 2040s, just straight up, this hydrogen-based steel will be cheaper than coal-based steel.
Okay, so what should Canada be doing in the face of that that helps clean up steelmaking? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Very, well, we very much have our own steelmaking to clean up, but the key thing here is that we need to work with our global partners to commercialize this hydrogen-based technology and make it available at a reasonable cost, especially to places like India and Africa, where most of the new steel demand is going to be. So, you know, if we're going to say, please don't build any more blast furnaces build electric arc furnaces for cycling and for this hydrogen-based iron, we, we have to make it cheap enough for them to use. And that's where we need to work with our partners. And the key thing to doing that is to create early demand for it. It's so, you know, the Canadian government can commit to what's called green procurement for our own buildings, our own infrastructure. They'll buy only the cleanest steel or pay a premium for it. And there was an agreement right around the time of Glasgow, uh, the COP26 in Glasgow, where Canada, India, the UK, Germany, and the United Arab Emirates all got together and said, we will work together to sort out a green, a, like a global a green procurement process. So the trick is first we need to say, we need to be able to tell the steel makers, we'll buy it. We'll pay the premium necessary for the first plants in order to get the economies of scales going such that by the early 2030s, we can say no more new blast furnaces should be built and ideally not past 2025. Let's bring it back to Alberta then. What, given everything that you've described here, what would a climate friendly coal policy in Alberta look like? Um, I would argue that we don't license any new coal mines. The existing ones are by far that have far more far enough uh, more than enough reserves to keep things going for a while, but we should have a plan to phase them down out through to 2050. Um, keeping in mind that there are existing investments in the ground, there are communities there, labor forces, what have you, that all depend on this. But let's not add to the problem. Let's let those let those mines run out as they as the demand slowly tapers off through the next few decades, and don't plan to build any more. Well, I guess we'll be watching what happens in Alberta and beyond with uh, steelmaking. Thank you very much, Chris. You're very welcome. Now, we started off the show with some thoughts from listener Dave Eaton, and that could be you in a future episode. Let us know what concerns you have when it comes to climate change in your province, and also what solutions you see, or better yet, ones that you're part of. Just remember that we try to take on one solution at a time and give it a thorough airing. Our email address is earth at cbc.ca. This episode was produced by Molly Siegel with help from associate producers Serena Renner and Rachel Sanders. Our engineer is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. Thank you for listening. I'm Laura Lynch. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.